2: Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com.
1: Uh, welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about, um, well, two interconnected things which I really had not made as many connections as I was led to understand through looking at this fantastic couple of websites, all part of the Grace Communications Foundation. My guests today uh, are Jerusha Klemperer, who is the director of Foodprint for the Grace Communications Foundation. She's also the host and producer of the What You Are Eating podcast. Uh, And uh, her companion, Robin Medell, is a senior research and policy analyst for the Water Footprint Project. And it was. The Water Footprint Project, which I read about in, I don't know, it was now so long ago that I've forgotten where I saw it, um, but it's a, it's a fantastic tool in which you can calculate the amount of water you are consuming through your food stream. So um, first, let's talk a little bit about Grace Communications and what you both do there. And then we're going to talk about the story of the water calculator and how we should be using it. But Jerusha, why don't we start with you
3: uh, and what your, your role is at Grace? Yeah, sure. So um, the Grace Communications Foundation is a family foundation that's dedicated to a variety of um, environmental issues, including those that are um, towards fighting for um, a better food system, you know, against the kind of predominant industrial food system that we have and um, towards something more sustainable. And the foundation has a bunch of educational, um, external facing projects Um, that are designed to educate students and consumers um, about um, issues around food and water, for example, that we're here to talk about today. So Foodprint is an editorial project of the foundation, and it's designed to help people understand the full impact of the food that they're eating on animals, on people, and on the planet. So looking at all of those animal welfare issues, environmental and social issues, Um, and how our food impacts not just personal health, but also community health. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we've got a website with all kinds of short white papers, longer reports, and then a lot of really nuts and bolts, pragmatic stuff around how to shop and cook and eat more sustainably. Um, But we really hope that people will dig in a little deeper past that to look at how these are systemic issues and how we can't quite shop and cook and eat our way out of a lot of these problems. <laughs> yeah, that is so true. And Robin, tell us about the Water Footprint Project and the
1: calculator.
4: Well, so uh, back in about 2007, uh, Grace wanted to start educating people about, it, it started with food, how much water food takes, but it it expanded to how much water basically how much water it takes to run our lives. And um, they became aware of the concept of, I say they, I should say we, I was there then. Uh, We we became aware of the concept of water footprints and put together a personal water footprint calculator. um, And... What it incorporates is uh, your direct use. So that's the water from a tap. That's the water that you see and feel that you can actually measure with a water meter. And also the water it takes, the virtual water it takes to make all of the food you eat, all of the consumer products you buy. So that's your clothing, your household goods, electronics, um, all of the energy you use. So that's electricity to keep your house warm or cool, but also all of the gasoline that you use. um, and, And then basically putting all of that together into a personal water footprint that brings it down to one person for one day and how much it takes for you to run your life in that one day
1: and it's a staggering quantity as I've discovered (laughs) how how, how did you do were you I don't even that was embarrassing
4: (laughs) so let me ask you this when you took it did you scroll down so you could see the breakout of how you use water so you could see all the individual values
1: um, no, I didn't. I did it. I was much less uh, thorough than I should have been for this. Well, but.
4: for people who do that, you actually can see that the majority of your water use comes through your food and through yeah. your other purchases, your, your household goods, you know, industrial water use. Um, so it's basically all of your lifestyle choices. Yes, direct water use is important. Yes, di- direct water use conservation is important but really the big bulk of our water use comes through our diet and it comes through right. the other parts of our life, our shopping.
1: Right. The consumer choices. I mean, consumer that choice. was the thing, you know, I don't, I, for example, I eschew having a lawn, even though I live in the country. So I basically just have a big patch of weeds <laughs> and um, I do have a garden um, and I do water that, but pretty, I pretty, you know, as far as conserving water around the house, and pretty conservative. But I, you know, when I was confronted with all of the other choices, I was like, I, I don't even want to, because of course, I love clothes. So I buy clothing. Well, fast fashion, huge water consumption there, right? You know, things like that. Um, that's where, that's where I was like, I just like, shut down. <laughs> yeah. Well, every, everybody has their breaking point with that thing. <laughs> it, yeah, it was painful
4: yes. yes. and and if you think about even just with with textiles so um you know some textiles are from agricultural products cotton rayon etc sure takes water to grow cotton um and then the the all of the i should say a lot of the fast fashion is made with synthetic fabrics and that's all oil that's another way that oil companies get to use their products or sell us get our money for their products is through right. fashion because all those yeah. nylon polyester fabrics are oil
1: they all are yes, in yes that's right yeah right right scary stuff yeah. so um just I, explain for the nerds because and i'm i include myself in that but you know when you broke out these categories like yes you can personally ca- sort of in your own head, think to yourself, well, where am I wasting water? Do I need to flush the toilet every single time I use it, for example? Or how often do I run a load of laundry? Is it full when I run it? But there are all these other more industrial components. Like, how do you – how did you guys figure out how to break that down into sort of water versus other raw ingredients? Right. The direct, Was there a
4: formula? The direct water use is so much more concrete. You can actually yeah. understand it. The for So water footprints for items um, are in three components. There's the blue water footprint, the green water footprint, and the gray water footprint. The blue water footprint mostly pertains to um, crop items. And so it's the amount of water it takes uh, to irrigate a crop. And it's from a reservoir or an aquifer um, green water footprint is the amount of rainwater it takes to. Uh, I'm sorry, I have that backwards. Green water mostly pertains to crops because crops rely on. A lot of crops rain. rely on rainwater. Sure. Where there's no rain, though, you have to rely on blue water in mm-hmm. order to fulfill your needs. Um, and likewise, where you run out of blue water, then you have to rely on rain, which if you're in a drought is a big problem. Then the third component is gray water footprint. And that is the amount of water. So all water use basically pollutes water and a gray water footprint is the amount of water it takes to bring that water back to local pollution standards, drinking or Mm. not necessarily drinking water, but water treatment standards before it can be discharged into its receiving water body. And, Mm -hmm. So for example, when we say it takes a gallon of water to make one almond, there's a significant portion of that that is polluted water that would have to be diluted back to pollution standards as a, a part of that water footprint. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. it, basically it's taking um, national water use numbers and bringing them down to a personal level. I see. National I think. food use numbers as well, food consumption numbers.
1: Right, right. And that we can measure much more readily and easily. Right,
4: yeah. You can measure um, it based so you- on retail sales and even, sure. even water use to some extent. You know how much water it takes to grow crops, and so you can estimate. It's a lot of estimating. Um, Of course, you can never know specifically what your water footprint would be because you don't know how food is necessarily grown unless you grow it yourself and you don't know how things are made. And and, and also, let me just say this. Nobody should have a water footprint of zero. You're never going to get your water footprint at zero because we need water to exist. And that's not even the goal. The goal is don't waste it. Use it wisely in a way that's more sustainable. It's not to get people to zero.
1: Well, it's very interesting that, you know, we talk a lot about food waste nowadays, um, and I've certainly done quite a bit of programming around food waste, um, and we'll talk about that more with Jerusha in a minute. Um, But I, I had never before seen anything like the water calculator and measuring a water footprint. And I I just thought that was such a fantastic uh, tool that people that really makes it concrete. Like when you waste a piece of food, you're not just wasting a piece of food, you're wasting uh, what amounts to or what appears to be going to be a finite resource. Um, I, you know, I've been following water woes for the 12 years I've been doing this podcast. And, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's shocking and astonishing. astonishing how rapidly uh, the drought has escalated, how uh, climate change has affected snowpack in the West, and especially what we're seeing out in this long-term drought in the West. Like I was going to ask you about whether or not there were any credible predictions about when the West is going to go dry Uh, You know, now that we're seeing all these terrifying photographs of Lake Mead and Lake Powell and finding, you know, Jimmy Hoffer's remains all over the place. (laughs) Like, you know, like uh, this is preeminent, as it turns out. It's not something that's going to happen in 2050. Um, It's going to be happening right away. So what are are there any credible predictions that you have come across?
4: Uh, You know, they they can predict it just it depends on how what of a year you end up getting because even if you look at the I sent you a link for the US drought monitor. That's an excellent way to monitor
1: oh yes. I didn't look at that yet. Yeah. Drought
4: Mm -hmm. in your state. And it's um if you look at the last four years, look at July, you can see that four years ago most of the country was not in a drought. Or if they were it was a like a level one dry. It wasn't Mm -hmm. drought. And and then four years later, a significant portion of the country is in extreme drought. And, yeah. and so it happens. Um, it, it's, it, there's this concept called stationarity, which, which says that you can predict the future based on events in the past. And for water, it's dead. That concept is dead. It died mm-hmm. a decade ago. And wow. we really, can't, it, you know, they can look at weather patterns and say we're going to be in a La Nina or an El Nino and then that's going to have this impact or that m- impact on how much water falls. But ultimately they don't know until they get there and they're actually standing measuring snowpack or they're looking at river flows, how mm. much they're going to have. And so I think the the consensus is that we may start seeing Lake Mead hitting Deadpool where water can't make it down below the lake because it's below the, the outfall level mm-hmm. starting in a couple years, it may hit that and then it'll rise and then it'll go down and it'll rise. And I, I don't, I haven't seen a prediction of when Lake Mead could go completely dry because I don't think anybody can say that they know that. I think it's, it's a wait and see kind of a thing. It's, it's almost becoming like a year or every two year kind of a, planning window. I can't imagine what uh-huh. it's like being a water planner out in the West right now.
1: Well, me either. And then there are all those arcane water rules and, yeah. and legislation that, you know, emerged in the late 19th, early 20th century that are governing the way water is used. And nobody seems to be getting a grip on, uh, on you know, uh, revising those regulations. And then there's also the fact that land in Arizona and other dry areas has been planted out to alfalfa and other right. you know cotton other water intensive crops and in you know where where's that water supposed to come from i right. mean right. yeah so
4: what happened was in the 80s and the 90s there were a couple of particularly wet decades and that also happened to be when the colorado river compact was being written and decided so all the states were agreeing the, all the states plus mexico were agreeing to how much water everybody gets based on unusually high levels of river flow and now those oh, river right. flows don't exist anymore so it's automatically already over allocated plus you add a mega drought on top of that and the water's just not there and we're growing crops watering crops in a desert with right dwindling water resources
1: um well what i mean we can talk more about this and jerusha i i I certainly hope you'll you'll comment on it but um you know the implications on food security and national security are so big uh when it cons. you know when it concerns water and i i just wondered if you had any comment on that on like you know, is somebody paying attention to this beyond sort of the immediate victims of dr- of extreme drought? Like, wh- is there a national policy that is being debated, or do you feel like legislators are paying I, attention? I, I think. What's your read on that?
4: So here's here's the thing. There there's no not there. First of all, there's no Department of Water. If you think about it, it's all split out between EPA and BLM and Mm -hmm. uh, even DOE. To some extent, they do some water and energy stuff, but there's no centralized Department of Water. And we don't have a lot of we don't have national water legislation beyond the Clean Waters Act. And you see the. Efforts to try to revise that with waters of the U.S. legislation that's that keeps getting batted around between right. the Congress and the courts, and it's it, they basically they're, they they keep going back and forth between it's up to the states, no, it's up to the feds, no, it's up to the states, it's up to the feds. Mm-hmm. States typically will take responsibility for. So the, there, there are federal regulations that govern quality. But in terms of water use, states will take responsibility for um, regional controls and less often sure. on local controls. Um, where they tend to do it more is in terms of groundwater use, because when aquifers get drawn down that water in a lot of cases is gone because it's, it's not easily recharged, but they're less, they seem to be, well, they they refer to the, they revert to the water rights system for water use conflicts at the state level. And of course, you know, in the West, it's all, prior appropriation where i got here first so i have the water right versus, that's right
1: seniority right. versus yeah right exactly. versus in the east
4: coast where it's you know i have this land that has water so i get a, a fair use of it or an equal use of it uh, or ben- right. beneficial use i think is the term um, right and and how it i think how it affects national security is internationally where we see places like in central america they struggle a lot with drought and that causes a lot of climate refugees and migration and right where do they go they want to come to the U.S. and Mm -hmm. this country has a has a hard time with refugees and we don't have an overarching immigration policy that says based on climate here are the actions to take you know it's it's a lot that we have a lot of work to do to address this. And so in terms of national security, I I think in our future, we're going to see a lot more climate migration um, and climate refugees that are knocking on our door saying we need help. And
1: Mm -hmm.
4: we are going to have to figure some things out about... We're
1: going to send them up to Canada, Robin, aren't we?
4: (laughs) So, you know, and here's the thing, like water, water's connected to so much. If you, if you, if Lake Mead runs low, then they have trouble producing power. And so Las Vegas gets power shortages and, and then factories can't produce because factories use a lot of water. Industrial operations take a lot of water and then people yeah. lose their jobs. If they have to shut down because they don't have water, people don't have jobs. And then that's right. it's, it's just it's this all connected kind of a, it's a web, it's a web. And it's, I know um, right. you had asked about the, the, um, the Nexus we can talk about that yes.
1: in a while, but... We're going to talk about that after this break, yeah. we're going to take in just a second. In fact, let's take the break right now, and then I want you both to weigh in on the food, water-food-energy nexus, because or food-water-energy nexus, because I thought that was fascinating. Um, and then Jerusha will talk a little bit more about food prints. So uh, stay tuned. We're going to be right back after this sponsor drop with Jerusha Klemperer, Robin Maydell from the Grace Communications Foundation, talking about your foot and water prints. I mean, your food and water prints. All right, so we were talking before the break about the food, water, energy nexus. What does that mean? And why do we need to pay attention to it?
4: Briefly, the food, water, energy nexus is the way that our food system, our water system, and our energy system all connect and hopefully achieve balance.
3: Right. If
4: you're paying attention, you know that that's probably not usually the case, but the systems influence each other. And, um, and here's how it takes a lot of water to make food. Um, It, it takes a lot of water to make energy. So if you're making thermoelectric power using uh, natural gas or, or coal, or even you know, concentrated solar or whatever. However you're making that energy, you're probably boiling water to turn uh, a turbine. And that water right. has to be, that water gets heated up and has to be cooled down. And then you're, you're it takes a lot of water to cool that water down and a lot of it gets evaporated and it's lost to the system. Also, a, a lot of um, water movement Takes energy because you're using pumps, and when you're treating water, you're using electricity to run treatment systems. So yes. there's that connection there. There's a connection mm-hmm. between food and energy because a lot of crops are now grown to become biofuels. Whether that's right, like
1: corn, like yeah,
4: corn, soy, palm. Um, it also takes a lot of energy to grow food in the form of fertilizer that has its origins in natural gas. So you you start to see how all of these things connect. And when you talk about food waste, you're wasting all of those resources in addition to seeds, labor, money,
1: animals. Yeah, it's breathtaking. Yeah. So Jerusha, let's talk a little bit, now that we've broken that down, let's let's hear what, let's talk about the food print. You know, how does that help us understand the food, water, energy nexus better?
3: Yeah, well, I think one of the main things that food print is trying to convey to the average eater is that all of these things are connected, right? And that's yeah. all of the major problems from our food system have come from kind of breaking a holistic system apart into different elements and then being shocked, right? That they've, that everything is disrupted, (laughs) you know? So you like the kind of typical thing would be, you know, you look at um, a place like Iowa uh, where you're, you've totally decoupled hog production and crop production, right? So whereas you used to have a small hog farm and there would be some corn and some wheat growing and various other maybe vegetables, and then you would raise some, Pigs and the pigs' manure would fall on the ground and fertilize the soil that would then grow this wheat and corn and other maybe vegetables. And then the hogs will eat some of that. And then it's this closed loop. And then now you have a state where you've broken those two things apart from each other and you just have um, swaths of land dedicated to growing corn and soy and swaths of land dedicated to huge uh, factory farms where you raise pigs separate from where those crops were and then are like, oh no, what do we do with all of their poop? Um, Because you're not Mm -hmm. anywhere near the fields and the scales are inappropriate and not aligned. Um, And that's the main thing we're trying to teach people about on Foodprint is what um, an integrated and holistic system looks like and what one where everything has been broken apart looks like and how you end up with these negative impacts when you break things apart.
1: Right, right. I mean, the thing is, is that um, I, much as I deplore uh, factory farming, um, I don't really see how we will, un- how we will reverse this, the trend that you've just described. Um and the way we have, you know, the corn lobby is so successfully indoctrinated everybody into thinking that biofuels, ethanol from corn and soy, is going to somehow save us and fossil fuel. Uh, you know, it's just the 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 interlocking of these um, sort of essentially capitalist, uh, profit driven industries uh, has resulted in this disconnect from what is in fact going to be able to preserve uh, our land and water resources for the future. And I I don't, I don't see how we're going to uncouple that. Do you like, I mean, I'd love to think that we could go back to, and I think like in an area where I am in New England, where we're working, you know, a lot of states are working hard to re-regionalize the food system. Out in Iowa and the Corn Belt, the Grain Belt, I don't see that happening. And I'm wondering, you know, this is just, of course, going off topic because that's how I roll. Um, But how are we going to uh, revise that system um, to reflect something that's a little healthier for the environment and by extension for the human race? What what are your thoughts about that, Jerusha? You've been in this game a long time now.
3: I mean... It's hard not to be extremely pessimistic. I will yeah, just right. start by saying that like, <laughs> oh no, I would we will solve this with you know small local food systems it's i am depressed about it, and i it's hard to disagree with what you're saying um i it does feel like you know watching like the climate legislation that's or that's starting to get pushed through that the only thing that will make any difference in all of this is when we totally run out of water when we you know. Our yeah. daily temperatures get so high and so unlivable that everyone is scared. So I would say the sad thing is that things have become so impossible to ignore. You know, that the effects of climate change are being felt even in the most privileged parts of the world. Um, you know, and seeing those pictures that you mentioned of lakes that people picture as, you know, full to the brim and then they're empty in a matter of years. These are the only things that are going If anything has the power to change anything, these are the only things. And whether it's too late, potentially yes, Um, but that's the only thing I ever see as having the potential to make a difference is because these companies and these these lobbies see like, well, we we don't won't exist anymore. This is an existential threat to our existence as a profit making.
1: Well, it's interesting to me that, you know, the, the, and this, and I, and people who listen to my show for a long time have heard this a million times, but I say it to everybody. It's the Reagan Thatcher era is what really. Yes. sort of boiled us along, uh, you know, deregulating industry, allowing monopolies and consolidation, uh, rolling back regulations on, you know, quality, air quality, water quality, et cetera. I mean, all of that stuff, and and basically taking the profit over people approach that has characterized the last fifty years in this in this country and around the world. Globalization, neoliberalism, all of that stuff. Dark money. That and is politics. all. Yeah, right. It's all comes from that particular era in the 70s and 80s when none of this stuff was even really on the horizon right like nobody thought we'd run out of water and you know i mean they knew it was going to happen but somehow all of that information was suppressed <laughs> you know and, and basic consumers didn't get that memo, what they got, cheap food. And boy, oh boy, when you start rolling those prices back up to what the real cost of production is, when you include the externalities uh, that we are paying for through our tax dollars into our food costs, that's when you're going to see some revolution around here, in my opinion. But I want to talk a little bit about um, the fantastic stuff that is uh, on your Foodprint website uh, because you have all of these very data-rich reports, and you mentioned them in your introduction at the top of the show, but you have these um, like short papers on the food print of food packaging, the food print of fork, the food print of my favorite fake meat or what the industry likes to call meat alternatives, which I think is the biggest boondoggle of them all. I really want to know who's making the money on that stuff. I want to, I want to hear a little bit about how you do the research and put those reports together because that is a truly rich mine of information for consumers who want to understand more about the food system.
3: Absolutely. So most recently, I would say some of our earlier reports, um, we were writing with various different researchers. Um, currently, we have someone on our team who's a research, a food research and policy analyst who um, researches and writes these reports, except the food print of fake meat, we co-wrote that one together, um, mm-hmm. he and I. Um, but yeah, you can see looking at the footnotes for these reports. I mean, it's like hundreds of footnotes, basically yes. pulling from all of the good data and all of the really excellent journals and news articles that have been put out on all of these topics. So there's no new reporting, as it were, in any of these reports. They are simply like a culling of the best research out there. Right. Um, they do have a point of view, of course. Um, we are a mission-driven organization, and um, you know, when we write a report on pork, we are going to write in great detail about the problems with factory farms and with the way that the majority um, of, of pork production happens in this country. And then also talk about what it looks like when you do it a better way. So mm-hmm. they all really have a point of view, but every they're highly footnoted so that you can see the statistics um, you know, of what this environmental ruin looks like, what it looks like when you um, destroy local communities, you know, when Smithfield uh, builds up hog CAFOs all over um, Eastern North Carolina, what it looks like for those communities and what it looks like when they fight back. Sure. So we really try to include the, the whole food print of these foods and then offer people um, guidance on like, well, how can you help support a better system? What are the laws and at play here? What are the labels that you can look for? All that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Right, right. I mean,
1: I have become uh, uh, firmly convinced over the course of doing this work for all these years that the only thing that is really going to change the system is some kind of legislation and finding politicians who are willing to stand up to lobbies and make rules uh, that – benefit the farmer benefit you know the uh, animal husbandry whatever you know part of agriculture you're working in um that that all has to happen before any of this stuff is going to change but so do you see like there are some states that really actually uh target food and water waste to a certain extent and some are not but i'm i'm going to go back to that federal issue of like have you seen any movement like Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warrens have been very active in trying to, uh, you know, demonopolize and have introduced a couple of bills to demonopolize, say, the the animal uh, agriculture industry. Do you see other uh, legislative initiatives being brought forward that might uh, serve as a kind of a blueprint for states to follow and for you know, or or is that happening in other countries that we could follow? What's your sense of sort of the global
3: uh, approach to some of these problems that pretty much every developed country is facing to one extent or another? I mean, you sort of touched on some of that anti-consolidation stuff, and I think that that is hugely important and nothing will happen uh, without it. And whether or not we're going to be able to push this, any of this stuff through is another question. But you also mentioned waste, some of the waste around, and that was where we yeah. started. So I can just look at this, you know, this issue of food waste, which can feel or sound kind of small if you haven't learned a bit about it, but then you realize that it is actually quite big. Yeah, um, give us a sense of that. I, I did mean to give you that opportunity to talk about oh, food Oh yeah, waste, I so mean, please do. you know, we in this country, um, we're wasting 40% of the food that we produce so when you look at this problem of resources, we've talked about, you know, how much water it takes, um, all of the pollution, all of the environmental impacts and the energy. Animal welfare impacts and all and the right. energy and, um, and also how many people are food insecure. Mm-hmm. And then you say we're wasting 40% of it. That's a kind of heartbreaking statistic. Um, and generally, you know, we've touched a bunch of times on this in this conversation already about how many things are like, we can't make a personal difference necessarily. Um, The legislation has to change. They have to break up the monopolies. They have to, food waste is wild because um, each of the, you know, the average for a household is that on the household level, just to be confusing, that 40% statistic comes up again, but 40% of the food that we have in our homes, we are wasting.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: So that's huge um, in terms of, that you can make a personal difference um, because it's not just a waste of all those resources. It is not just a waste of our personal finances, um, but also when this food ends up in landfill, um, it emits methane. So it's contributing to um, greenhouse gas emissions. It's contributing to climate change. So when we look at climate change, mitigating possibilities, reducing food waste is actually um, a huge opportunity. And looking in our own homes and making changes in our own home can actually make a huge dent. Now, obviously, food is being lost and wasted every step along the chain, but it's also being lost in our households. And that's something we can work on personally. However, there are also things that can happen legislatively. And unfortunately, there's not much happening at a federal level. I mean even something as simple as the Food Date Labeling Act, because yeah. uh, would have been extremely helpful and it died in committee. And even though everyone was like, that sounds like a good idea. It seemed to have like right. bipartisan support, seems like a really easy win. And even that bleh, um, didn't hmm. happen. But food date labeling is important because a lot of the loss that happens at a um, retail level and at a household level is because people have confusion about what does Best Buy mean? What is Sell by, like right. This is probably expired, right? I shouldn't eat it. And people rightfully have concerns about food safety. So they're throwing stuff away. But if we had sort of codified date labeling where people could understand um, that they were all the same and that this just meant, you know, after this date, smell it. <laughs> See right. What if it tastes you know, bad, don't eat it. Right. Like that would be yeah. extremely helpful. But even that couldn't pass. So The most promising thing is stuff that's happening on a statewide level. So there are a bunch of statewide laws um, already in action or, you know, about to be enacted in various states around the country, things to keep food out of landfills. And in some cases, those laws are um, directed mostly at um, institutions, you know, so saying like restaurants and schools and this and that, whatever, are not allowed to put food waste in the trash. Mm -hmm. Um, Like they have that. It's called the universal recycling law in Vermont. New York State recently um, passed this, uh, just the ban for institutions. Sorry, the Vermont one is um, for individuals, for homes as well. But in Rhode Mm. Island and New York State, you've got ones that say institutions are not allowed. You have to get your food waste um, into the compost stream. So California, of course, is like out ahead on this. So the more and more states we can get on board with this, the better, because it doesn't seem like anything like this um, is happening at
1: federal level. At the federal level. We, we only have a couple minutes left. I want you guys to get a chance to talk about some of the educational uh, initiatives that uh, Robin let me know you guys are, are pursuing in terms of um, working with educators developing um, content modules to help explain some of these concepts to younger kids because after all <laughs> this is going to be their world so they should learn early about this stuff. So can you just quickly give us an idea of what some of the the products that you are able to pump out to educators, if they're interested, and in how educators could learn more about that.
4: Absolutely. So, what we realized initially, we were marketing the calculator to uh, kind of the general public consumers, and we realized along the way that we we really wanted to get to. Young people, and the way to get to young people is through teachers. And so we changed our strategy and started educating teachers. We started marketing to teachers, educating teachers, and it's been really effective. We've had nearly 4 million people complete the calculator. make it all the way through. And it's, I think I figured it out today. We're at almost 3.7 million completions. That is fantastic. And it's, it's really encouraging because I know like I've, I've talked with students who are doing, working on projects and, you know, I can see the light bulb going on. I'll, I'll, I'll tell them, everybody uses water. There's no reason for you to be wasting water. And for example, if you're standing in your shower doing anything other than washing your hair or your body, let's say you're planning out your day or you're in the shower at the end of the day, reflecting on your day, you're wasting water and you can see the yeah. light bulb go on and say, oh yeah, I do that. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's a little <laughs> place to start, but then they also start seeing in terms of their their food use or or food waste or and so what we put together is a series of lesson plans for two grade bands that uh, three lesson plans per grade band that touch on first of all what a water footprint is the water footprint of our food and then um kind of the water footprint of their school so it it offers teachers an opportunity to work with students to do a survey of their school and look at how they're using water in the school and they've been very popular they've been uh we have everything on our site is free and a lot of it is downloadable the lesson plans are all downloadable and we've had a lot of downloads on it and um, it really is an attempt to get them to have a more holistic picture of how they're using water. Because mm-hmm. if, you, if, they, if they don't understand saying water use beyond the tap, water and food, it's so abstract. And if they don't understand what that means, mm-hmm. it's, it's never going to land with them. And so these lesson plans are a way to make the concepts of how they use food and, and how they use water through food very concrete
1: um, right and then as they get older they can pursue other uh, they can do that whole food water energy nexus exactly you, you know, where you see how the clothing choices you make the appliance choice you make right. the you know paper that you're i mean all of that stuff well just and, breathtaking. and there's
4: actually another set of um lesson plans produced by Johns Hopkins called FoodSpan that you might be interested mm. in. And they mm-hmm. actually address a lot of those other issues that Foodprint addresses at a uh, um, middle and high school educational level. So mm-hmm. they're also bringing those concepts to a more concrete level. And it's, it, I mean, we started doing this, we put the lesson plans up I don't know, three years ago, but we really started appealing to teachers when we, we redid our whole site in 2015. And that's when we really changed our focus to teachers. Mm -hmm. Um, So it hasn't even been a decade. And so those students from middle and high school are just becoming adults with purchasing power and so we'll see, you know, they, they hopefully have it in their brains that these choices that they're making for their families, for themselves and their families or households have implications.
1: Right. And implications for society as a whole, in addition to their own personal stuff. Right. We're going to have to wrap it up here, but I want people to understand how and where they can learn more. So Jerusha footprint, where, where do they learn about that? sure www.foodprint.org okay that's easy and the water calculator robin www.watercalculator.org okay ladies that could not be simpler people it couldn't i mean do the water calculator thing it's 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 painful and eye opening in ways that I exactly. highly recommend. For <laughs> And the footprint stuff is also really fascinating. I mean, just reading, you know, through a few of those papers, I, even I, you know, I wrote a book about the meat industry. I mean, I've really immersed myself in that topic. And even I learned some stuff. So really well done. This is all on the Grace Communications Foundation website, Correct. So people can can, find links
3: to this from there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So people can learn more about what's happening at Grace um, and more about, uh, you know, the other projects that you guys are involved in. But I really, I so appreciate your time today. I hope you'll come back. This is a wonderful conversation. There's a lot to unpack here, a lot to talk about. Really appreciate your time today. And uh, I wish you the best for the rest of the week. And um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thanks to people for tuning in. Thanks to my sponsors, as always. See you next time, folks. Have a good one. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.